Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, mm-hmm. or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast from the Byline Times. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the week in politics. And what a week. Boris Johnson resigns, but at the same time, survives for the time being as Prime Minister. Yeah, I know. We're still trying to work that one out. And Keir Starmer survives, along with his deputy Angela Rayner, after being cleared over Beergate. We'll be getting insight from Tom Watson, former deputy leader of the Labour Party, who knows all about life inside a besieged number 10 from his time as a close aide to Gordon Brown. So, we're Feel free to join in the conversation if you want to. If you're listening on a smartphone via the Twitter app, there is a little microphone in the bottom left. So if you want to ask a question or make a comment, by all means, do join in. Firstly, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by my colleague Hardeep Matharu. We can report without fear or favour Because there is no wealthy proprietor telling us what to say. No non-dom telling us exactly what to think. Our funding comes from ordinary readers taking out subscriptions to the Byline Times. So please subscribe if you can. It's a fantastic read and it supports our work here on radio and via the podcast. You will get full details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com, our newsbreaking website. And if you've already taken out a subscription, well, thank you. So, Tom Watson, welcome along. How are you doing? You're right. Good, thanks, Adrian. Yeah, yeah. I'm slightly bewildered by the week, and um, it's the the most I've been glued to Twitter since I left politics two and a half years ago. But other than that, things are but good. The fact that we're talking about politics again, which I know is something you've shied away from from long time is perhaps uh, tells its own story it's just been captivating entertainment albeit entertainment with a very serious undercurrent as well yeah it really is and i mean it it's no way to run a country really is it um even though when you've been on the inside you can sort of see the bleak moments and see the sort of the comedic side of it uh but i think everyone wants it to stop now don't they and they want to return to some form of stability and god knows what everyone's thinking around the world looking at the uk at the moment i mean we you know we are pretty much a laughing stock i think i described it on byline radio yesterday as johnson's trump moment all the <laughs> indicators were that everything really was against him perhaps apart from one or two newspapers who were desperately keen to see him remain in downing street but his own party his own ministers his own cabinet had deserted him were you surprised it it took him took so long to winkle him out i I don't know i I mean the thing about boris johnson um a lot of people I mean, a lot of people predicted this would happen, actually. Um, anyone that's ever worked with him would say this was always going to be a car crash. I mean, I'm not just talking about Dominic Cummings, who, you know, as an advisor, should I think he really did have a, you know, a, a responsibility to, you know, try and do a better job for him. Um, but if you look at people like Max Hastings, who are not prone to exaggeration or, or other journalists, they said this would always happen. Um, and, it, you know, you can't help but be mildly irritated and contemptuous of all the people who suddenly realise that, 
it was a disaster zone and it was all you know the walls were coming tumbling down um but they, and yeah but you, you you know what do they do now i mean there is actually a national interest in this there's a responsibility on all the other party leaders to try and get this thing we call parliament back on track for labor to be an effective opposition with a government a functioning government and and you know there's so many questions today about how long that's going to take and whether it's possible even um you know i don't think i think the country is going to be still sort of just sort of slightly bewildered and curious about what the next week or two is going to unfold for them um and let's just hope there's not an international crisis in the meantime otherwise we really will be in trouble Mm. Uh, promised insight, Tom, into life inside the number 10 bunker when the Prime Minister is under siege. So take us back to your time as an aide to Gordon Brown and how difficult it was for Gordon Brown and what you saw and heard during that period. Well, I guess for me, I mean, the first thing is uh, to say, it, even in the tough times for Gordon Brown, I mean, you know, there were... A, Attacks on Gordon's leadership, uh, you know, att- attempts to remove him as an incumbent prime minister, um, but nothing like we've seen this week. Um, but it is a funny place, Downing Street. You, you know, as a building, it, it's a, it's a Grade One listed building, um, and, and if you were redesigning government, you would never put the sort of command and control centre of of, of, of of the country's government in a building like that. Um, you know, people people it's very hard to to actually sort of maneuver around the building um and there were in my time there were very serious security concerns about even having a mobile phone in the building so communications wasn't as rapid and so you always find that you're actually hearing kind of breaking news around yeah, urgent events usually secondhand, which would be a surprise to everyone. Um, so, and I so when Boris was in that committee yesterday, and Darren Jones, the the Labour MP, told him there was a delegation waiting for him at number ten. Um, that that what that you know that was obviously a shock to Boris, and it was a bit of a. It, it took me back to the times where these news stories were, were happening around us. And of course, but when you're in the middle of it, you end up with a media scrum. So you end up with sort of, you know, a thousand cameras and journalists outside number 10. You're literally under siege. Um, you can very often end up with crowds of people at the gates. Um, and you've got sort of messages being beamed in by text message and email. But Downing Street itself is just a very old, calm building. You know, you it, it, the, the, there are thick carpets. The noise doesn't echo around there. You you can almost hear the clocks ticking and and the sort of china cups chinking whenever there's a crisis. And it and so it's this very unnatural sense that you know the world is closing in around you, um, but actually inside it's always very calm and very quiet. And and in our day, of course, we had um, you know the the brightest and the best of the servants who who were generally unflappable. Um, and so even though we were the political appointees around Gordon and we would be feeling intense pressure and stress because there'd often be, you know, MPs uh, firing in text messages by the dozen, most of them contradictory, giving advice. Um, and until you, 
you were in a position where you could appraise the prime minister of the choices he had. You had to kind of keep them at bay until Gordon could make a decision on things. Um, and you, you know, the, and you and sometimes you had to sort of distinguish between the various crises and what was the priority. So I, I was there when the when the banking system was um, melting down, and I remember having to brief Gordon on a on a party conference matter that was tricky politically and in media terms it was potentially difficult um but there was also the banking crisis and and i remember jeremy hayward putting his head around the door saying you, you know there is a currently a currency flight because the germans and the irish have guaranteed bank accounts at a certain amount and there's a lot of money leaving london over to Dublin, you, you need an emergency regulation prime minister. Um, and I got out of the room and realised that 400 million quid had sort of left the country or whatever. It was a lot of money. Um, and, and But, you know, prime ministers are asked to make those kind of decisions all the time. Um, and that's why they need to remain calm. And that's why they need good advice. And it's And very often, you know, it's actually giving them the options of the least worst option um so it is it's very unnatural it's very unnatural um <laughs> and uh but i i i mean the, the impression i get from this week is there was more chaos on the inside than there was on the outside and that's obviously a great cause of concern for everyone including the 60 ministers that ultimately resigned yeah i I'm intrigued to know at what point uh if you like, a routine political crisis, of which there are many, you'd hope not perhaps on a weekly basis, but inevitably as a Prime Minister, you may face three or four crises a year. At what point that tips over into a crisis which is existential? How do you know the difference between one and the other? Uh, well, you, I, I mean, I guess... I guess the real dividing line is real and artificial. Uh, so real in our time was, you know, the prospect of banks going under and people losing their homes. Um, artificial was MPs resigning, trying to cause a leadership crisis, uh, or, or in a sense, artificial in the sense that, you know, that's what would make the headlines in the newspapers. And all, all the goal was always, I mean, you know, we always said if, you, if if the Daily Mail could get a story onto the BBC, then, you know, a story had legs and you you probably had to address, I mean, it's very different now because social media is much more prevalent, but, um, you, you know, you, you had to deal with it immediately. Uh, and, um, and 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 I, you could see the frustration. I mean, you could see there's, you know, if I if I'm playing devil's advocate and trying to empathise with Boris Johnson this week, you, you know, he's got, um, you, you know, you he'll be getting intelligence reports from Ukraine. There'll be decisions on supply of the Ukraine military equipment for the Ukrainians. There'll be intelligence reports about, you know, Brits abroad. Um, you, you know, we've, uh, you know, the Iraqis have arrested, uh, the Iranians have arrested uh, a British citizen. All those really important things are coming in to do with world affairs, and yet you've got backbench MPs and PPSs resigning. Um, you, you know, you can see the frustration. Um, and then you've got sort of cabinet ministers jostling, uh, and, and you know the very nature is he would have been wrong sighted on it. I, I can't imagine he would have known that Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak were going to resign within half an hour of each other, and that he, either that it was coming. Um, and then, and and then 
amongst all of that, before the resignations, he would have actually been trying to deal with the Christopher Pincher issue, um, having, you know, for whatever reason, whether he whether he was, you know, um, he had amnesia or you know just partial amnesia, trying to manage a story that becomes about his integrity and his honesty. Um, that's a real prop. That that that's a problem. Uh, and how he managed his priorities would have been very difficult, I think, as well. Yeah, I'm just thinking for you though, as an actor in the middle of it, when you're there with Gordon Brown and you were very close to Gordon and were part of the, if you like, the plot to remove Tony Blair and, and ensure that the agreement. Obviously, obviously I'm going to deny that. I <laughs> but to ensure, I mean, the, I've been reading uh, Alistair Campbell's diaries again, and you know the yeah. the the agreement that Blair and Brown had that at some point Blair would hand over to Brown, which Blair, once he was prime minister, seemed rather reluctant to <laughs> enforce. You know. Uh, Brown becomes prime minister and immediately the right-wing papers are onto him. They, you know, Brown, Brown's kind of attacked pretty much. He's given no honeymoon period in a way that a, a conservative prime minister might be by papers like the mail who you've mentioned, like the sun, like the, like the telegraph. And you kind of know that's coming. And Alistair, Alistair Campbell's diaries are very clear about the, the need to manage those right-wing newspapers but and you know you're going to get assailed then don't you you know you're going to get assailed but at, at some point this intensifies to the point where you think mm -mm, the prime ministership might be in jeopardy i just kind of get the sense of what it's like to be right at the heart of those moments because you were there alongside gordon brown when that was happening to his premiership there's a couple of moments there. I mean, there, actually, there's there's one moment when I was actually still a minister, and then one went after I'd left uh, a department. The, the first one I, I remember, I, I can't remember the actual story, but it was around the Damien McBride issue, and it was before Damien McBride left. Um, but Gordon was trying to get hold of what was considered, you know, a slightly unruly team around him. Um, in terms of sort of briefing and all of that. Uh, and I remember going to see him to say, look, you've got a lot of ministers who are really concerned that, you know, this operation is, you know, not disciplined enough. Um, and, you know, there, you know, for example, on the front page of the Times today, there's a, there's a story that basically is saying carnage in Downing Street, civil war between X and Y. Um, and... It, it, this was sort of, you know, I finally got to him early afternoon and he'd be so busy on other things. It was like about 25th on his agenda. He, he, he wasn't aware of the article. Uh, and yet the entire parliamentary party were talking about this civil war in number 10. Um, but it had never actually got to it. I, I guess if you're the press officers at number 10, what you, you don't want the Prime Minister to read on the front page of the Times that all the press officers are falling out with each other. So maybe maybe he'd, lost, he'd not had his press cuttings that day. But, you know, it is amazing how, I, I mean, people, it is, it, the first thing to say is there just are an extraordinary number of things you have to sign off on. It's like, a, you know, it's like a sort of throughput of sign-offs. Um, and, you know, Prime Ministers have to trust the teams around them to make the you know to basically give them the time to 
consider these decisions very often. Um, so these political squalls, very often a PM wouldn't see it uh, until it's sort of, you know, unfolded. Um, but the, and yet the other one, I do remember being at the Labour Party conference having left government to actually sue the Sun for libel, actually, which was the sort of the, the beginnings of the phone hacking inquiry. Uh, but I was at the conference where the Sun newspaper, the day before his speech, editorially turned on Gordon personally and endorsed David Cameron. Um, and I, even, I mean, I think even Rupert Murdoch was embarrassed that the um, the editorial team in London had done that. It was a gratuitous thing to do. It, you know, it, it exploded a you know, a little media bomb over the Labour Party conference, got loads of PR and publicity for The Sun, uh, but, you know, really represented a breach of trust and probably overreach politically. Um, and I remember being with Gordon Brown that night and, you know, his team um, really to sort of, you know, it's, how do you deal with the media story or about the media story is what was going on. I mean, the sun, the sun was leading the news, not the speech. Um, I mean, it was that significant in those days. I don't think it is these days, but um, and that was very difficult, you know, because what do you do with the prime minister when a, you know the, one of the best-selling newspapers in Britain has turned on you personally the day before your major speech to the country, and there he is thinking about his speech and and all the ideas and the values and the and the vision that sits behind did and he's got to deal with this editor who's sort of you know looking for headlines at the time um try, trying to sort of generate pr around a paper and you know be a political player in their own right um and that was very difficult because it you know it was unjust and it was against the scheme of things and you, you know tabloid newspapers were perceived to have more power in those days until until the phone hacking scandal, uh, which many people in byline times were involved in as well, in exposing. Yeah, it. yeah. Well, I mean, you you write a pretty detailed account of that with your book Dial M for Murdoch, which I would uh, recommend to anybody. It, interesting, though, you say that. I mean, Alistair Campbell does talk an inordinate amount about wanting to appease Rupert Murdoch, but. The fact that the Sun attacks a Labour Prime Minister and endorses his Conservative rival, you know, well, that that's not such big news, is it? Is that really a... a well, well at, the t- at the time it was, because, I mean, you could argue... I mean, actually, the Sun had been sort of moving away, but editorially, to on that day, to say yeah. you're backing David Cameron, it did make the news. It made the BBC. It made... Yeah. You know, so they, it was gener- it, it was a shock at the time because of the, the timing of it. Um I mean, you know, you you could argue that it was misplaced for Labour to try to find an accommodation with those newspapers. Um, I mean, I remember in the mid-90s, it was considered, you know, communications genius to try and tame the sun. I mean, people think that the sun sort of were with Tony Blair all the way through opposition. I mean, they only endorsed Labour about a week or two before the election. Um and, um, you know, you could argue that Labour got too close to those newspapers. I, I certainly remember when I remember, when I went for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party, um, I remember being on stage and I'll spare the blushes of my rival and not name her, but we we did a hustings meeting. It was the first hustings meeting. It was in Birmingham. There's about 1,500 Labour Party members in the room. And she got up and said, um, you know, I, I'm the only candidate on this stage who can have a good relationship with the Sun newspaper. Um, and 
the room was coldly silent. And I, you know, I had to get up and say, if you want to vote for, if you want a deputy leader who has a good relationship with Rupert Murdoch's papers, I promise you it's not a good idea to vote for me. And I got a massive round of applause. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, wherever Labour is on that. But I mean, you know, Campbell is right. You know, part of politics is trying to project the best policy you can or the bet your policy in the best light you can using all the channels you've got um i you know i think the i think the concern among some people in the labor party was you know we were almost trying to appease the sun and dilute our policy in order to get good headlines and you know he'll always deny that uh, and um you know but that would that was the creeping concern um and these days you know social media causes other problems and issues i think for elected officials and political parties but at least you have got the ability to get your own message out using your own platforms um like this one for example i mean wouldn't it be brilliant if gordon brown could have done a a twitter live on on byline radio uh you, you know an hour after finding out what the sun had uh, that sort of changed their editorial policy. I think it would have moved the dial a little bit on politics. Mm, 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 mm. Well, at least it gives you, as you say, a, a greater degree of control over your messaging. And if there are people who want to find out what you're saying, they at least have the option to do that, which, as you say, in pre-internet times was, was very much more difficult. Although people might look at Johnson's time in power and observe the behaviour of the Mail, of the Telegraph, of the Sun, and look at the way in which they've been able to set agendas. I mean, we all know that the... The, what the papers say segments on TV news uh, end up discussing stories that those right-wing papers lead with. It ends up infiltrating, let's say, Jeremy Vine's programme on Radio 2. So although we do live in a time of a more varied media landscape, I would suggest that those newspapers and the barons who sit behind them still have an inordinate, a disproportionate influence on British public life and the the general discussion that we have in this country. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I still believe... You know, we need a pluralism in our papers. We do need a Daily Mail, but we need a we need a left leading paper as well. Um, and 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 the other, I mean, I think the interesting thing about those, you know, pe- those papers that were sort of almost cheerleaders for Boris, it, it, it's not really the stories they wrote; it's the stories they didn't write. And arguably, there were public interest stories that you know, even a right leading paper you know, had a kind of obligation to follow up and they and they pulled their punches or ducked the stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I, sorry to interrupt, Tom, but I think there are many of those. I mean, partly, you know, Byline Times has been able to flourish because of that lack in the mainstream media, the lack of kind of the w- deliberate lack of curiosity by some of those outlets. And I have to say, in some cases, by the BBC being unwilling to take on a government that has shown its teeth to them. And I'm going to be chatting a little later to my colleague Adam Bienkoff about a story involving Johnson, Johnson meeting Alexander Lebedev, former KGB agent, in the wake of the Salisbury poisonings, a meeting which 
Johnson has admitted to this week, but which was first reported on, I think, in The Observer back in 2019, which Adam Bienkoff has pursued then via Byline Times. But the lack of curiosity by other news outlets for that story, which has significant implications for the security of this country, is, it, I mean, it's difficult to defend that in any way, shape or form. I think it's only, I think the story there is what why I mean it could be there could be less to this story than meets the eyes, which is more to yeah, this yeah. Story. I mean it's a it's a strange thing that your foreign secretary uh and you'd want to duck out and go to a party uh in an oligarch's palace. I I, I mean there's no doubt about that. And and, and even though it's tempting because you could think I've had a really tough week at the office and I'm just going to hop out, hop into this airport and go to a big do, uh, and it lends itself to that kind of scrutiny. And that and that's the thing about Boris. Um, although, you know, the other bit of me thinks this led the Dev family. They did actually when the when they owned the Independent, they were actually doing, you know, supporting independent journalism and proper scrutiny. So. You know, I almost feel that they, you know, that they've kind of been portrayed as cardboard cutouts in this, and they do, they do end up needing their voice heard in this debate as well. And I'm sure it's going to happen now that it's all come out. But I mean, why? I, it, for me, I look at Boris. I just think, you know, you're a hedonist. You know, the le- the most you owe the country. If you want to be prime minister. The least you could do is set your alarm clock an hour earlier in the morning. It's a tough job being foreign secretary and prime minister. The truth is you can't go to parties every weekend, no matter how opulent and how how rich these people are. You've got too much work to do. Uh, And, you know, I think he let people down with his work ethic as much as all of that. And and these legitimate questions that Adam and others are asking, because he did slip his security detail and do all of that, you you know, they kind of... Because he wouldn't answer them, I, I suspect it's just because he fancied a thirty-six hour blowout, and and who doesn't fancy that? And I'm sure that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown fancied it, but the point is they didn't do it because they had responsible positions of public office. Theresa May and even David Cameron, who you know has a reputation for liking a party, they, they you have to roll your sleeves up and do the job, and you have to make sacrifices in these big public roles um you know with how you behave the time you allocate to your job the relationships you have and the people you meet and 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 i think that will you know that's really what's going on there isn't it and it and it's you know and 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 this is what was predicted by people that have worked with him yeah yeah at what point in the last few days do you think boris johnson realized that the game was finally up (laughs) I'd love to know. I mean, in a funny sort of way, I don't often say this, but I I am looking forward to the Sunday papers where where they will do the, you know, they do they do those very good chronologies, you know, eight oh one, eight oh three, so 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 so. Um, I think he probably knew the game was up quite a long time before he actually pulled out. Uh, but his character is such that he wanted to face all these people down. Um, and you know, draw these people out, um, uh, and you know the fact the fact that he could take time out of his busy, pressured day to sack Michael Gove at the end of the day shows that he was across events. Um, and I think he probably saw the writing on the wall, but 
he, he managed to find the time to settle a few scores, um, which is a, which is bleakly comic. I know I'm, I'm 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 sort of laughing, but I, you know it's tragic comic as well, isn't it? I'm, and I'm sorry if people think I'm being too flippant. I'm not really because you, you know I, if it should never have happened this way, but you can see. You could see him just, you know, slowly fizzing over as these notes came in. And so I suspect he probably went to bed the night before he resigned, knowing he was going to resign, but, um, you know, just working out the best way to do it. And, yeah. And, and in it's, a funny sort of way... You know, Tom, I, I think of really interesting uh, maybe not interesting to other people but these kind of domestic details you know <laughs> when you know you're not going to be prime minister for much longer do you watch any telly do you read you know these are things i might do before i go to bed watch watch half an hour comedy read a book in bed um, listen to a bit of radio <laughs> i mean is that well the, char- the characters of it, that depends on the characters of the uh, the individual leader mm. I, I mean i know I mean, I always look at how Gordon Brown and Tony Blair ran their operation. So, I mean, I always describe Gordon Brown as probably the last great academic prime minister. He was always, you know, ideas drove him. And so you go into Tony's office. This was when I was a very junior person. I didn't go in as often as I did with Gordon. But Tony's office, you won't be surprised to know, it was immaculate. Uh, And um, his desk was... You know, it would always have three pieces of paper on, you know, the one he was working on, the one he was due to work on, and the one he just finished. And every so often, someone would come away and take a piece of paper out and give him another one. And then with Gordon, he'd go in his office, and there were, you know, like 30 books with the spines open in piles and submissions everywhere. And civil servants would come in and try and take things away. And he'd very often say, no, no, I need that. I'm working on that. Um and it, you know, he'd have sort of draft lines for speeches on his desk that he that he was mulling over at the same time, because he he was all it was always the ideas that drove him, you know, and you you can see that in the different strengths and weaknesses of both leaders, and and, and um, so Gordon, I mean, in in a bad time, uh, I mean, Gordon was always an early riser as well, so um, you know, there were times there was a point where he he basically moved us all into an open plan office all these sort of key ministers and civil servants. And so there was this sort of giant square of desks, about 14, 15 desks, and I was on one of them, and he was at the head of it. I mean, you know, like I'd, I'd get the bus from my flat or, you know, whatever. I'd get, I'd get in at sort of half seven, eight a.m., and he'd be always at the keyboard, and he'd always look up from his keyboard and say something irritating like, good afternoon. Uh, and, you'd, and I'd always think, Gordon, you've got a flat above number 10. Everyone that works here, like, you know, all these civil servants live in the suburbs. It's probably taken them an hour and a half to get in on, you know, network rail. Um, but he was, but he was, that was what he was like. He was driven by, he was, dri- he, he, you know, they all had work ethics. I mean, both him and Tony were very, very hardworking. Um, and he wanted to get things done. Uh, uh, and there were things I, you know, he would occasionally be distracted by by sort of rolling news, you know, and that, and that sometimes took him away from issues that you had to sort of, you know, try and get back on track. And and at the end of the day, if it, after a bad day, though, he'd quite often say, do you fancy a bite to eat? And he'd go to the flat and he'd, you know, he'd, He'd scrabble around the fridge and try and find a microwave lasagna to share. Um, 
and that's when he let his hair down a bit, you know. And sometimes he'd have a glass of wine, or you, you know, other, if he got something the next day, he wouldn't drink. Um, and you know, that, that's when a sort of prime minister, you know, if you're close to a prime minister and they can just sort of let their hair down a little bit. And, and Gordon, he would always, um, Gordon, when he was chancellor. He would always, obviously his big day of the year was the budget. And and there's a sort of big build up to that. There's a lot of energy put into a budget because there's a, you know, it's not easy to put one together. So he'd always pull a team in, uh, pull the whole of the team that did the work on the budget into his flat. You know, the 20, 25 people at the end of the budget day. And, and there'd always be big chunks of lasagna. I, can't, I don't know whether Red Bull's ever made any of his lasagnas, but there would always be lasagna and a glass of wine. But Gordon, he was so sort of um, frugal. You, you know, they always talk about that. Oh, hello, Tom. You're still there. You dropped off briefly. Uh, you've got, sorry, Go on, you dropped off briefly. Sorry about, Go on, yeah. When I look at these stories about gold wallpaper in, um, in number 10, I mean, Gordon was so frugal. His bathroom still had Margaret Thatcher's chintz wallpaper in there. And, and, you know, what the spare room had, John Major's, his and her sort of uh, cabinets. And, and his telly was so old, it couldn't get Channel 5. You know, I mean, he'd never, he was like, so you sort of sit in this sort of flat that was you know, almost like a student bed sit almost. Um, uh, I'm just thinking microwave lasagna and a glass of wine. It's not Boris Johnson's idea. No, no. I mean, you know, it's not. Um, it's not a palace in Italy. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that, that's how. But that's how they were driven. You know, I mean, they were. It, it, there was never really an on, an off switch. It, I mean, I guess, but that's with most politicians. They're all they're all fairly motivated. Yeah, uh, I'm interested in what you think of Boris Johnson's legacy. I mean, the, his defenders will try and spin the narrative about his brilliant performance over vaccinations. Against that, you have to balance the deaths of people in care homes, people discharged from hospital without being tested, leading to thousands of deaths in care homes, uh, an event which has been pretty much glossed over in the political obituaries of Johnson that I've seen over the last 24 hours. Numerous scandals, issues like the Owen Patterson affair, Partygate, of course, his failures over the Chris Pincher story, the positives, according to his supporters anyway, are about vaccination, about his support for Zelensky in Ukraine, the levelling up agenda. Again, though, I'm looking for kind of hard evidence of of where levelling up has actually happened. I know that Alistair Campbell has been tweeting about the fact that Bromsgrove, Sajid Javid's constituency, managed to get levelling up funding, whereas Barnsley didn't. <laughs> Anybody who knows Bromsgrove or Barnsley will know which one <laughs> rather needs the levelling up uh, money. Uh, of course, Brexit, you know, he, he did technically deliver Brexit for the country. He was the Prime Minister when Brexit happened. And for many of his supporters, that will be his single biggest achievement. But, in, you know, trying to be fair and balanced about it, is there anything Is there anything positive we can say well, about Johnson's time as Premier? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm obviously going to have to work very, very hard to try and give him a legacy on this discussion. Um, I actually think the defining point which where there were you know it could have gone a different way was was Ukraine the decision on Ukraine to show total solidarity with the Ukrainians and to uh, 
provide intelligence and military support. Um, you, you know, there would have been different voices around the cabinet table advising diff- a different course of action there. And I think he finally did the right thing, um, maybe forced into it, because I suspect that um, I suspect that uh, Ben Wallace was quite instrumental in that as well. Um, on, I mean, I guess he would like the getting Brexit done uh, maxim to apply to him. But, you know, the truth is he only got Brexit half done. If you look, I mean, Northern Ireland, I mean, there was a point yesterday where we got direct rule in Northern Ireland because of the Brexit chaos. There was no devolved assembly. And then when Brandon Lewis resigned, we got no direct rule and no assembly there was literally no one governing a country in the United Kingdom. Um, all right, it was only a short bit of time when we got Charles Farah back, but um, I think it does show there are. I mean, you you are really stretching it to say that Brexit is actually done. I think, um, which is why I think Keir Starmer this week was actually trying to say, you know, we've got to finish the job, and, and that's where, and of course, that's like all these things with international treaties, these things, you can be in permanent session negotiating these things for, for decades, not just for years. Um, so I think, I, I think he could cling to Ukraine. And then on COVID, I think, you know, only a public inquiry will show what really went on there. But, um, you know, I, I think the biggest failure was actually not locking down sooner in lockdown one. Mm. Uh, and and that and there would have been lots and there are plenty of very authoritative advice to say you need to make these big decisions very very quickly. Um, and I know that because when I was a minister, we actually role played a cobra for a pandemic outbreak. And you're sitting in a room in you know in the cobra briefing room, and the scenarios are, you know, there's a there's an avian flu outbreak. Do you close the airports? Do you cancel all sport? You know, do you do, do you sort of you know reduce liberty even more than that? And and then you look at the evidence and you look at the spread of these things um, and realise that you could save many tens of thousands of lives if you act, you know, very very quickly before the spread takes hold. And that and that clearly didn't happen in lockdown one, did it? No. You mentioned Keir Starmer. I will talk about uh, Starmer, Tom, but I'm very interested as well in the attitude towards Northern Ireland. I mean, I think Northern Ireland has been treated with utter contempt by Johnson and the Conservatives, many senior Conservatives, bearing in mind it is the Conservative and Unionist Party. Johnson saying that this border through the Irish Sea would only happen over his dead body. But as soon as it became politically expedient to erect an invisible border down the Irish Sea, they did it. Now, I've spoken to people a lot for the podcast and for Byline Radio in Northern Ireland, and it's a a place I've been to. And uh, aside from the question of whether Ireland is eventually reunified or whatever, the levels of poverty, the levels of deprivation in Northern Ireland are as bad, if not worse, than in many other parts of the United Kingdom. And these are issues, we we never see Northern Ireland through that prism. We only see the Northern Ireland through the prism of loyalism versus nationalism, now through the prism of Brexit. This is a part of the United Kingdom that desperately needs Westminster to pay attention to it. Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, there were actually 
you know, I won't sort of name the names, but there were many elected MPs from the north of Ireland who were concerned that not enough attention was paid to the Good Friday Agreement and, and maintaining its trajectory from David Cameron onwards. You know, the access they got to Cameron was not great. Um, and, it, you know, the counter-argument is, were the unionists really that dumb to think that Boris was going to deliver what they wanted? Um, I mean, some of those DUEP and DUP MPs were his biggest cheerleaders when Theresa May was trying to get a deal on Brexit. Um, and you don't see many of them praising him now. Um, I mean, I remember Ian Paisley Jr., um, who I en- enjoyed a good relationship with when I was an MP, we, even though we disagreed on nearly everything. Um, you, you know, he was very uh, and arguably he's delivered a worse deal for the Northern Ireland than Theresa May was going to deal deliver with her deal. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, and actually the European Union negotiators need to show a bit more agility. Um, and Leo Vardica as Taoiseach was, you know, new to the job and, you know, a little, dare I say, a little bit brittle in the way they negotiated. So, but the, the truth is... It, everyone needed to give a little in that negotiation, but there was no trust. Uh, and, you know, you're not going to have any trust if the current treaty is, is you know, considered to be a breach of international law by every other participant in that treaty other than us, uh, no matter what legislation goes through Parliament. So I suspect that one of the things that will be put on hold as a result of this neutral sort of caretaker cabinet that's now in place will be the passage of that bill until a new leader can come in and decide what they want to do with it. Let's talk about Keir Starmer. He has been cleared, along with Angela Rayner, of any wrongdoing over Beergate. Is that good news for the Labour Party? Yeah, if I was uh, if I was Angie Rayner who succeeded me, I definitely want to be doing the Euro Millions tonight. 191 jackpot. <laughs> seen up the Tory Prime Minister and then the next day the sort of Damocles hanging over their head and creating great uncertainty in the Labour Party by the way behind the scenes um, has been removed so it's probably their best week um, and you, you know it's I, I, okay I am I'm genuinely semi-detached from politics these days I, I, I can't think of a single political analyst commentator or politician who would have? Who in 2019 thought Labour had any chance whatsoever of forming a government, be it coalition or minority government? Um, that the Tories were definitely going to be a two-term government under Boris. Their election win was so great that they could afford to take a hit in the next election and still have a working majority. Uh, and now it's game on, isn't it? And now Labour, you know, Keir Starmer could be Prime Minister at the next election, and he's done that in two years as leader, okay, Boris has helped him, uh, and, you know, as Napoleon said, give me a lucky general, but that's also down to leadership, and it's down to character, uh, and, you know, you shouldn't have to say that integrity, decency, and honesty are, are the virtues you want from your political leaders, and there's a political premium on them, but sadly, <laughs> because of recent events, uh, people are looking at character, aren't they? And he's got that. Um, and uh, so I think I think he's I think he's actually pulled off 
quite a feat, uh, despite still having you know many people who don't want him to be leader on on either side of left and right of him. Um, I, I can't I can't fault him really. Okay. Oh, it's interesting. Well, you talk about the integrity that he has. What he doesn't appear to have is the pizzazz, the little hint of showbiz that Tony Blair had, that Boris Johnson had, that he maybe at a push David Cameron had. Maybe in these times that's an advantage. I don't know. But I just wonder how well he reaches out to, in inverted commas, ordinary voters who don't have the kind of who aren't engrossed in politics on a day-to-day basis well there are three when i used to look at polls and run by elections and worry about these things um there were three things you look at really the the first is voting intention you know what would you vote at an election the second was economic competency and you know how do you compare to your other the other parties who's you know are you going to be safe on the economy and the third is on leadership ratings. Um, and actually, on all three of those, for an opposition party, two years in with a new leader, um, those three ratings are pretty good for Labour, in my view. And I remember this from going into the 97 election, which was obviously one of our biggest ever victories. We were only neck and neck on economic competency going into that election. Um, it's very hard to win trust on those things. Um so I think I think Keir, um, for those voters that that know him, and and this is still take it takes a lot of time for a leader of the opposition to cut through with all voters, but you do get there eventually. For me, I think people think he can be prime minister. They think he's got the values, and they and he clearly has got the competence to do it. What they want to know is who's he going to surround himself with, and and actually the challenge for him is, is still a kind of you know a, an echo of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and that not twenty nineteen manifesto, which was which was too left uh, for the vast majority of core Labour supporters or a very sizable chunk of core Labour supporters. Um, you know where does that sit in a Keir Starmer? Uh, administration and I think those of us that know you know that live politics day to day um, obviously Jeremy Corbyn's going to be nowhere near a, a Keir Starmer administration but there's a bit of work to build to project the team around him to show that in in real terms with what they say and how they behave and what they do but I think if he can do that in the next period um you know, he can make him. He can build further on 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 the poll lead, um, and you know, the turnaround in the polls is just it, it is you know it's pretty remarkable. I, I find it I find it quite surprising people don't give him more credit for that because I wouldn't have I I didn't think it possible that Labour would be ahead in the polls two years after two 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 and a half years after that last election. Do you think then Labour could? become a party of government, become a majority party from the current situation of trailing by 80 seats, that they could actually win a clear majority under Starmer, really? It's funny. I, well, I, th- I think if you'd have asked me this two years ago, I'd have said it's almost impossible. Um, and yet I actually put this question to 
Tim Shipman of the Sunday Times. I was at an event yesterday, and and he, he said it's very it's very possible that Keir Starmer could be prime minister. He then caveated it and said he might end up being in some kind of arrangement with the Lib Dems, not a coalition. Uh, but you know, Labour could easily be the largest party. Um, now, if if Tim Shipman of the Murdoch owned Sunday Times is saying that, um, I think it just shows what a dynamic electoral situation we're in right now um, and how it's kind of game on. Um, but it would be an extraordinary <laughs> electoral turnaround to do that in one term. And, and now, the flip side of that is, I, you know, a lot of people say, you know, try to say that the last election was like 1979 and Margaret Thatcher or 1997 and Tony Blair. It, it represented a change of thinking in the country. I, I, I'd never thought that. Um, I, I've always thought it was close. The country was sort of more closely divided than we thought. I, I thought it was actually basically a least common, least worst option election. I think people were voting against Jeremy Corbyn when they voted for Boris Johnson, or they were in those red wall seats. And what really surprised me, I mean, I, I, I've only been back to West Bromwich East constituency to campaign once in the local elections. And I went back to support some of the lovely councillors there that had supported me over the years. And when I knocked on the doors, I was really taken aback. I mean, I was meeting first time conservative voters who'd gone for Boris because they thought he was a character and they were angry. They were angry with me on his behalf. You, you know, why, what is Boris Johnson doing? I, I almost had to say, no, I've got nothing to do with Boris Johnson. They were, you know, they were so sort of, it was almost like there'd been a betrayal, like he'd misled them. And I, and that really, it did, it did sh- shock me because I thought there'd be more, because once you make a journey to another political party, it's hard to come back. But I think he, bre- I think he, I think he's breached that fragile trust um, that was building up with his behaviour. And I think that's why those MPs were so angry this week, because they're hearing it in their seats as well. And that really is squandering an opportunity, I think. Really, mm. I mean, you know, quite viscerally, you know, because it'll be ver- once bitten, twice shy and all of that. Yeah. You mentioned that Jeremy Corbyn manifesto in 2019. There'd be many Labour supporters who'd look at key pledges from Corbyn around nationalisation and say, if you look at the cost of living crisis and the massive cost to the taxpayer of market failure in the energy system, the millions, the tens of millions of pounds that ordinary consumers have had to pay for the failure of energy companies. And I might say, come on, energy is something that we all need, we all rely on. Effectively, it's a monopoly one way or another. There are only six major companies left in the energy market. Why don't we nationalise it? You look at the fragmentation of the railways, which again relies on massive investment from the taxpayer, but at times of duress in the economy, it's the taxpayer who picks up the tab. It's not the shareholders who pick up the tab and say that actually there was quite a lot right in Jeremy Corbyn's economic agenda. I, I, I mean, I don't think this, I don't think anyone would argue that public ownership of. Um, you know, uh, national assets of the utilities is economically wrong or politically wrong. I think what they looked at with that manifesto was, 
you know, you know a, a manifesto that promised too much that could be delivered. I mean, remember, it wasn't just the utilities like rail and electricity. They, they snuck in, sneaked in um, nationalisation of broadband, uh, which hadn't gone anywhere in the Labour Party. I mean, I was responsible for that brief, and uh, that appeared in the manifesto, and no one had told me about it. Um, so I, I think it was the slightly chaotic and overreach um, linked also linked to the characters of the people responsible for it particularly Jeremy and John um, where people just thought this isn't serious and of course there was a there was a lighter chapter Um, I'm trying to remember the detail of it now but I mean people were not sure where Jeremy was on NATO not sure where he was on defense um, not sure where he was on you know internal security like police um and there wasn't a lot of reassurance that we were going to make people safe in their homes so you, you know now obviously that's you know I, I i'm i was more on the sort of pro-european social democrat wing of the party um and those disagreements were you know within you know what you'd expect in a party but i i think it would be really naive for anyone in the labor party deciding on the next manifesto not to consider why voters rejected us in their, you know, many hundreds of thousands uh, at the last election. Um, and uh, so, you know, it may be we get to the next election and there's an overwhelming case for, you know, social ownership of the electricity companies. I mean, if these energy companies, uh, I, mean, the, I mean, the energy market is clearly broken in its current form and will need reform anyway. Um, and actually, you look at the international crisis we got from Ukraine 30 years ago, you know, I remember learning about the theory of complex interdependence where the stronger economic and cultural ties you have between countries make the cost of war so much greater. Well, what we've got is complex interdependence with states that have got different values to us. And that's what's happening with Russia now. You know, France can't get transparent wine bottles for its wine because they were made in Ukraine. Bakers in the UK can't, you know, are worried about where they're going to get the flour for the bread from because of Ukraine. Germany's worried about where it's going to get its energy from because of the Russian pipeline being the threat of turning that off. That's a problem for us. But there is an opportunity. The argument that, you know, energy markets haven't achieved, the current energy markets are broken. The, you know, the global energy market has not, it does not allow us to make the investment we require to go to get to net zero because technology is changing so much, the businesses that own them don't want to take the risk. So that might require a government intervention. Um, they don't allow security, you know, they don't invest enough to protect security of supply. So look at the UK now, we're rapidly trying to reopen gas storage um, tanks that we shut down. The market couldn't stand, you know, couldn't provide the security we require for home energy use. And so the government will have to assist in that. You know, there are other things that the international crisis is bringing to the fore that might make it make a stronger argument for public ownership of these utilities. I think my argument there is, you know, the the explanation and the, and the people delivering those arguments, those people were not trusted at the last election. And actually, I think there's Keir Starmer with his sort of deliberative approach and his thoroughness. 
um, and his calmness, he might actually make that case that you can have a radical manifesto uh, that is credible and implementable. And be, be, by the way, he's also got Rachel Reeves, who you know I think is one of his one of the key assets and should be used more at the next general election. They've got a good team there, and they can make a good offer. And it could be very different to the what to what people have had in the last sort of twelve years. Um, so there's a chance that people will say it really is time for a change. And I think Keir's next challenge is to build that team around him, where you know where there's even where there's greater trust put in the Labour team, not just him. Interesting, as you speak, Pam, who is listening to this uh, on Byline Radio. Thank you, Pam, has just sent us details of a servation survey for the new statesman showing that voting intentions are 45% for Labour, up 2%, 31% for the Conservatives, down 4%, 11% for the Lib Dems, staying steady, and the Greens up 1% to 3%. So we're very interesting. Tom, we'll finish now, but I'm really grateful for your time on the week in politics, which may or may not become uh, a weekly institution on Byline Radio. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but um, before we go, um, and I'll be clear, by the way, you haven't tapped me up to promote your new book, which has nothing to do with politics. But uh, as you're on, you are now a best-selling author and not just in the world of politics. You've got a new book out this week. Adrian, thank you for that. It's called Lose Weight for Life. So if there's anyone wanting to a blueprint for losing weight and maintaining it, can I recommend it? It's in all good bookshops and has got good reviews so far but um, on Amazon. So uh, I hope you like it. And it comes out of a book I wrote called Downsizing about how I um, lost a hell of a lot of weight, regained my health and reversed type 2 diabetes. So there's, there's a lot of us out there in that position. No, indeed. And that is a terrific book. I've not read the new one, Lose Weight for Life, but I have read Downsizing. And that is just... A great story, one person's story of kind of dealing with severe overweight and how to tackle it, the ups and downs of that, and um, it's it's a, an inspirational read. Tom, thank you very much indeed. It's been great to speak to you. This is uh, Adrian Goldberg. This has been The Week in Politics here on Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up on the Byline Times podcast. Remember, we are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, a wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharo. Find out how to subscribe by visiting our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com and don't forget as well to check out the bylines app on your smartphone opening up the world of our regional bylines as well thanks very much indeed for listening stay tuned to at byline radio for details of our next twitter spaces byline radio live don't forget to subscribe to our byline times podcast as well that is free we'll see you all again soon thank you and goodbye